Welcome to another edition of Religious Studies Project Discourse, which is our show where we um, take a group of erudite and fascinating religious studies or study of religion scholars and cast our eye to stories that are happening in the news at the moment. Um, those of you who may be living in a bubble, um, well, you probably should be living in a bubble at the moment, actually. Um <laughs> You, you you may not have noticed that the COVID-19 pandemic is currently dominating uh, the news agenda, so that will certainly be dominating um, our podcast today, I imagine. But I am promised cats and dogs at the end of the episode, um, so I'm mentioning that now to make sure we don't get too pandemic-focused uh, for the entire time. Um, for context, my name is Chris Carter. I'm recording from my hastily assembled home office in Edinburgh, where I'm based at the University of Edinburgh, just coming to the end, scarily, of a three-year postdoc um, in religious studies at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm joined today um, by two special guests from the other side of the Atlantic. Um, we have um, a, a long-time contributor to the RSP in the form of Chris Silver. Chris, uh, welcome, and can you tell the listeners just who are you? Yeah, hello, everybody. I am uh, Dr. Christopher Silver, and I'm at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and teach in their Doctorate in Learning and Leadership, which is an interdisciplinary doctorate. Um, and my area of specialization is in psychology of religion with a particular focus on uh, stigma, uh, prejudice, discrimination, those kinds of topics. And then I also dabble in qualitative and ethnographic approaches. So, Wonderful. And um, a newcomer um, to the RSP Airwaves is uh, Savannah Finver. Um, Savannah, I believe you're at Alabama, yes? Um, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am finishing up my master's degree currently at the University of Alabama. I should be done here um, at the end of April. Um, and I'll be moving on then to a comparative studies PhD at Ohio State University in the fall. Um, my interests, my research interests really focus right now around um, religion and law, uh, particularly in the United States and how um, religion gets talked about in legal discourse, uh, particularly Supreme Court cases that focus on um, religious freedom and discourses around that. Fantastic. So, um, yeah, some, we should have some interesting takes, certainly, on this very dominant story um so yes it, it won't have escaped anyone's attention then that we have this um pandemic which is um affecting um people all over the world and certainly in the context where we're recording um and naturally there are plenty of entanglements with um discourses on religion and discourses on the coronavirus um whether we're looking at um various forms of practice and regulation, lots and lots of people blaming coronavirus on various um, um, things that um, certain religious, quote, groups would not agree with and so on. Um, so we're going to spend most of this episode talking around that. I mean, the first thing perhaps to focus on um, might be um, the sort of 
the turn to the digital in um religious worship whatever that is um i certainly know my father is an anglican minister in northern ireland and has been uh um, diligently recording and uploading his uh, services for the past few weeks. And obviously this week that we're recording in is the uh, Christian Holy Week. So he's having to do a lot more of that. Um, and I gather more people are listening to these than would be in the parishes that he would be preaching in. Um, so um, we've got a lot of people adapting to um, trying to present their um groups um worship practices in an online format um and also various um restrictions on public gatherings and so on and people rubbing up against the sort of secular state legislating on matters religious so i thought uh, perhaps uh, one of the two of you might have um and an example to sort of kick us off with on this broad topic of sort of the interaction between practice and um i suppose social distancing what's going on just now um i mean i can start uh being in alabama is certainly uh particularly interesting right now in terms of the social distancing we were one of the later states to implement any kind of stay at home order in fact it was just really over the weekend um and we had a lot of you know we have a lot of mega churches in the area uh that refused to close down uh even in light of the coronavirus um and of course uh there were reports released talking about how these churches were hotbeds for for the coronavirus and and spreading um you know spreading the disease around to the members that refused to stay home so uh it's been definitely a, a interesting to see um which groups are following the stay at home order versus um you know, trying to continue on in spite of uh, certainly uh, legal limitations that have been put in place. Exactly. And it really, um, to my mind, I mean, I've posted a few times on the RSP um, social media. One was a good few weeks ago, but it was, um, whether it was real or not, um, the, the the meme certainly um, struck a chord where it was um, a vessel for containing holy water um and it said um you know holy water temporarily removed due to um for the the on the developing health crisis um we have issues surrounding um particularly catholics um you know wanting to participate in the eucharist um but how can that happen if a priest um, can't be there to administer it can does the priest's power extend to um, you know, blessing elements um, via online media so the actual physical engagement can take place and so on. But it really um, just highlights how um, in many contexts we've got this sort of mythical divide between the religious and the secular and the secular authorities shouldn't legislate on religious matters and so on. But here in this present moment, we're having a real kind of flashpoint moment where um this idea of religious freedom in whatever way that may manifest in different countries is really being um tested by having to submit to 
um, secular governments and so on. Um, and it, it just really emphasizes that uh, re- regardless of any sort of notions of religion being a private matter, um, that doesn't play out um, when the chips are down and when uh, when the state's got something at stake. I, I, one thing I would add to, too, <clears throat> is that, um, and and I, I like Savannah, I'm, of course, in the South as well, and I'm in her backyard, basically. I'm in the state of Tennessee. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what what's interesting is my dad, who is a Gideon, so I hope you don't mind a little bit of an ethnographic approach to this question. Oh, go for um, it. My, my father, who's a Gideon, this is the, the folks that a lot of times if you stay in a hotel um, or if you're in hospitals, you'll a lot of times find their Bibles and, you know, nightstands and uh, dressers and those kinds of things. He's a member of this organization. And what was fascinating is, and, he, and he's been a member for a long time, and just sort of the, I don't, I don't think it really hit home for this, the, the sort of Appalachian kind of religious folks except um, we we're now courting, of course getting reports of um, infections and death. And to sort of frame some of that in terms of a narrative, my father was sitting across the table from somebody who was infected and they, you know, he was sick at the meeting going, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel well. And this was about three or four weeks ago before things really had kicked off in the South. And the friend was like, you know, I'm not feeling well. I don't, you know, I've been kind of ill for the past few days. And like two days later, they found out he was actually um, infected with COVID-19. And then I want to say a week later, maybe less than a week later, he was the first person in Tennessee to die from the virus. And so um, it was interesting just watching my father and his sort of colleagues and how they respond to it. Um, Many of them, including my own dad, did not taking it seriously at first. Others sort of taking it very seriously and and going to their their, their medical professionals to find out if they should be tested. Um, one of the responses, of course, was you know having group prayer and those kinds of things. And to Savannah's point, going against what you know has really been sort of the health message of social distancing, and now having lost one of the sort of devotees of this group, I think it many respects kind of woke them up to the seriousness of the virus and that we're really in a different time. And in many respects, I'd argue uh, a different culture now, um, if, if for temporarily, but, you know, changing the way we, we practice religion, we think about belief um, and the ways we express those beliefs with others. I think it, it's going to be an interesting time to see what comes out of this. Absolutely. And yeah, condolences to your father and, and of course, everyone affected. I've, um, a couple of people, um, in my circle, um, have, have died in the past week. Um, my partner's, one of her grandfather's close friends and, and then also one of my best friends. I'm n- neither connected with coronavirus, but um, yeah. passed away in the last week. Um, and now, of course, we're restricted in terms of gatherings for um, funerary rites and that sort of thing. Um, so even, um, you know, for individuals who might be classed as non-religious, but we still there's still sort of r- rites and rituals which normally occur and now... And um, there's a whole lot of adaptations are 
are having to happen and uh, a lot of things are having to be processed in in quite different ways um but just on that practice front um there was an excellent tweet went round um within the last week um and again I haven't checked out the legitimacy of the tweet, but it doesn't matter whether it was real or not. The fact was it was a, a meme that was circulated, which um, seemed to make an interesting point. It was it was uh, notionally a response to someone saying, you know, oh, if you think COVID-19 is bad, just wait until the states are overrun with Muslims and then you'll know sure. what's really bad. Um, but um, someone apparently then posted this excellent uh takedown of that and like well you know at the moment you're all um you're all avoiding bars not shaking hands um you know no one's um drinking alcohol and that sort of thing. you know like hey you're all muslim now bro um <laughs> which, which i thought was quite an interesting uh you know as an interesting put down in of itself but it emphasized you know a lot of scholars will tend to look at um, practices which are happening and they'll go, oh, well, you know, these people are engaging in this and engaging in that and that. Therefore, you know, those are religious behaviors that might be quite interesting uh, now that things have shifted and people are behaving in, in different ways, um, how that might affect those measures of ostensibly religious practice and might, I've always thought there's mislabeling going on in those sorts of studies, um, but um, this one just made me, made me pause for thought and thinking, well, you know, if people are performatively living in a, quote, Muslim, unquote, fashion, does that make them Muslim, according to certain studies? I think that's interesting, too, in light of, the, of what you were just saying about not being able to engage in funerary rites, um, particularly because, you know, funerary rites are not limited to a particular... Uh, religion, you know, a lot of families, whether they identify as religious or not, perform some kind of ritual around death. Um, and not being able to do that now, I think, uh, especially in a time of great crisis, shows us, you know, that perhaps ritual is not indicative of of the sacred necessarily, or even of religion. That ritual is perhaps just something that humans engage in to keep them grounded and help them navigate the world absolutely now both of you you're um based in the states and i know savannah you were talking about looking uh you know like part of your work being looking at the, the law and politics and so on um so i read i think just last night um that we have an interesting situation developing where um many churches in the states um now potentially qualify um for um some of the aid packages that trump has recently announced you know like pastors salaries etc could be paid for um by government aid um as they're operating in effect as small businesses um and then naturally there's been a little bit of a kickback against that um because of the the no establishment clause um i just wonder if either of you have any uh, if you read any more about that or heard any more from your local context i did hear about it um i didn't look into it in too much depth but it does remind me a lot of the hobby lobby case uh hmm. which i looked at uh partially for my thesis because in one of the um you know i've been looking at the satanic temple for my thesis and 
uh, one of their court cases uh, relied heavily on Hobby Lobby uh, in terms of the religious freedom rhetoric. And in the Hobby Lobby case, of course, you know, Hobby Lobby was determined to be a closely held corporation, which meant that it had the same rights as individuals. And I think that Trump's response to the current situation in terms of saying that, you know, churches are, are essential and be, you know, offering aid to, um, you know, to, to clergy and such, um, I think is one of the inevitable effects of the ruling in Hobby Lobby that Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg noted in her dissent when she said um, that this is going to be, you know, that Hobby Lobby would be an excuse for a lot of uh, organizations that identify as religious to seek legal aid in a way that would not have been allowed previously. Absolutely. Chris, have you any thoughts there? I mean, one of the challenges, of course, becomes in, um, and, and this has been the case, particularly in Tennessee and some other Southern states, and I'd love to hear Savannah's thoughts on this. Um, one of the challenges, of course, is what, what, what does the state view as authentic religion? And where we've seen this in the past, um, and I'm, I think I might have even mentioned it in our previous RSP podcast, is the role of um, the clergy in marriage and who constitutes legitimate clergy and who doesn't. And so, for example, the Universal Life Church is now currently um, has a suit filed against the state of Tennessee related to uh, what they claim is, is, is legitimate clergy and that they, you know, they have just as much of a right to quote unquote ordination as anyone, any other, any other organization that wants to. And so um, well, I think where this gets also interesting is, is that following Savannah's logic here, which I, I appreciate, it's like, then does this also mean that if I'm a Universal Life Church um, minister, quote unquote, am I also, um, can I qualify for compensation? Do I qualify for um, some kind of support, um, especially if, and you can make this, while it may seem comical, you could make this a legitimate claim if you're if you're one of your ways and your sources of income is serving as a, as an officiant of weddings or, you know, or celebrant or, or any other of these kinds of roles, in theory, you would be potentially legally entitled to that, to that compensation as a small business, just like any other faith tradition. So there, there are definitely long-term implications to some of the decisions that we're being seeing made now. And, it, and it's not a political issue as much as it's just an interesting sociological legal issue as to what these things mean downstream after COVID has sort of subsided and we're back into, um, you know, life as usual. I'm very interested to see, you know, what is going to happen when the Satanic Temple or when the Scientologists or when the Pastafarian ministers you know, are now suddenly applying for aid. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I think it would be it would be really, really interesting to see um, how that pans out and what the the legal response is because, you know, of course, regardless of what, regardless of prior precedent, the court can rule either way. And as we know, you know, we have a, a very conservative Supreme Court right now here in the states. Um, 
you know, so just because Hobby Lobby was successful doesn't mean that, you know, you know, they're part of a dominant Christian, you know, Protestant Christian worldview, whereas, you know, groups like the Satanic Temple are are obviously not. And it's very, very much in the purview of the Satanic Temple to get involved in things like this, to use exactly this kind of experience as a way to critique the category of religion and critique the legal um you know, privileges that are associated with religious groups. So um, to my knowledge, they haven't reacted yet, but I'm going to, I'm fascinated to see how it's going to pan out for sure. It's interesting, Savannah. I had a friend of mine who was a theologian, um, Southern Baptist theologian, I should say, who made a great point about, about the satanic temple um, was saying that in some ways we sort of see these apocalyptic kind of prophecies coming true of good being bad, bad being good. But, but the joke of course is, is he's like, but probably not in the way that Christians would, would like to see the prophecy play out. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And this is all making me think, I mean, this isn't directly news related, but um, in the last week I've been grading um, student essays and uh, one was a sort of, um, it was applying a Marxist critique to um, contemporary forms of humanism. And they were particularly writing in the UK context. And um, there was a line in the essay that really got me thinking. And then, and then I posted a bit on Twitter I had a bit of dialogue with some colleagues and then someone's um, Tim Stacy sent me an, an excellent forthcoming chapter that he has. But, but the thought process was something along the lines of, so humanists in the UK, um, uh, they are a charitable organization and such. And I think that the student was making the point that, um, you know, Marx um, probably wouldn't be too much of a fan of contemporary humanism because it's, marketing itself as a a sort of way of life or life stance something mimicking a religion as opposed to being political ideological and revolutionary um and she was pointing out how or they were pointing out how um uh you know humanists hands are tied because if they say anything too political it might offend various members who may be across the political spectrum and so on but it got me thinking, and then Tim's article was was excellent. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, I can't circulate it. But just we were talking about how um, once you know, sort of by being granted the status of being a religious group or a um, a religion like group, in the case of something like uh, say the British Humanist Association, it sort of defangs their potential to go against the sort of neoliberal state as it were um once you've been granted that status it's kind of a way of yes there are exemptions and tax breaks and so on but it seems to bring with it an element of well now you can't really speak out and do anything that the state wouldn't agree with but the flip side of that as david robertson pointed out well groups that do speak out against the state or do challenge neoliberal principles they aren't granted that status. Uh, so there's this sort of constant reinforcement that, that the status comes with privileges, but it's a way of regulation and control. Um, and so we're seeing it now in terms of which groups are deemed worthy of receiving aid or deemed to be performing essential so social functions will be those ones that uh, 
don't offend the principles of the neoliberal capitalist state. Um, and Tim's article it was doing a lot of work, you know, exploring things like environmentalism and so on, and how um, you know an environmental group might be granted special status as like a charitable institution, provided all it's really doing is you know picking up litter and telling people to recycle more. But the moment that they start engaging in, say, the sort of activities of maybe extinction rebellion and that sort of thing, then that isn't an acceptable form of environmentalism and that won't be granted the same sort of protections as um, other forms of environmentalism when they start to be couched in terms of a belief system that should be protected and so on. Um, So that's just a little bit of a riff on what I was reading this evening. Um, We've already been recording for 25 minutes and we haven't had any cats and dogs yet. (laughs) So I'm going to say it's cat and dog time. Um, Chris, um, what's the article? So an article that came out back in December of 2019 in the uh, Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion is titled How Religion Predicts Pet Ownership in the United States. Uh, It's authored by Samuel Perry, um, Department of Sociology at the University of Oklahoma, as well as Ryan Berg, um, who's at the Department of Political Science at Eastern Illinois University. And so the the interesting aspect was, I think they were trying to look at some of the different elements of religion and how they may potentially predict pet ownership. And so, um, and there's been quite a bit of the media that's covered this article. So it's made it out into the popular media as well. But one one of the things that one of the areas where the popular media has been lacking is um, I think the most popular, the popular uh, titles that we've been seeing is that atheists are cat owners and Christians are dog owners. And I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification, um, it's more likely due to the fact of, of, of service attendance and that um, those individuals who um, are more likely to attend services um, are probably less likely to be pet owners, right? But, um, you know, those who um, attend less services are, are more likely to be pet owners and that those um, – so it kind of in the moderate range to, to, to less regular tenants that are generally Christians are more likely to be dog owners and that those who are less likely to identify with the tradition strongly and, of course, don't attend services are probably more likely to be cat owners. Now, um, one caution that every statistician in the world gives you is, is that this is a, this is a correlational article. It's a correlational study, meaning that um, we're not inferring that, you know, your religious identity causes your pet ownership. Um, but, you know, the authors did a very good job of sort of laying out some of the different flavors of religiosity from um, more liberal type traditions to more conservative type traditions. And interestingly enough, it seems like the more evangelical uh, a person is, the less likely they are to probably own pets in general, which is, which was kind of fascinating. I wonder, do they draw any kind of like personality conclusions based on that? Or it's just like purely about pet ownership? Excellent. Excellent question, Savannah. And you, you are brilliant in asking it because that is exactly right. Um, in the discussion later on in the article, in the discussion section, they they draw you know they draw that sort of assumption that it might also be that we're looking at religion and personality possibly interacting to um, explain some of the pet ownership trends. And so, 
um, you're right on the money. So it very well could be that it's not the, the effect of religious membership per se being uh, linked to pet ownership, but rather it could be that religion is part of a much bigger characteristic like personality that might in fact be the, the, the correlative variable here in predicting pet ownership. So, um, fortunately, the authors in the actual article themselves sort of very careful to line this out. But like I said, some of the popular media glossed over some of those more specific details. But nonetheless, it's still interesting to to note that um, it could very well be, and, and sort of extrapolating from this now, now I'm going to do very the very thing that some of the media did. Um, it very well could be that our social trends and how we interact with other human beings may also translate well into how we interact with our furry, furry friends. And so, um, you know, we see some of those same social trends of people in their congregations may very well be translating when they're at home with their pets. Which, of course, yeah, makes a lot of sense, you know, because personality wise, you know, your personality is informed by the the people that you're socializing with, right? So it would Absolutely. make sense then that you're, you know, you're also socializing with your pet when you're interacting with them. So I think, yeah, that's, it's very interesting. I would love to read the entire article and see kind of where else they would take this in the future. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, they, what's cool about it is in the discussion section, they talk about some of those, those, is it personality? Is it social mechanisms? Um, just reading through it. And of course, the, the authors are clearly sociologists, but they, they borrow some from, um, psych of religion, which is my discipline and talk a lot about sort of the importance of social bonding and why this clearly would translate into religious and interpersonal bonding, you know, so that you can see some of those links and attachment theory between not only what happens, you know, in the church, but also what happens with, with your family at home. Absolutely. Well, we'll be sure to link to the article and some of the media stories surrounding it um, in the text that goes out with this episode. Um, you know, we're already pretty much at time there. Um, which is, which is a shame because we can keep on talking and talking. Um, I'm sitting in the a UK context where, um, we have the national health service, um, and, um, a lot of scholars have, um, in recent years begun, um, to talk about how the, the national church in a UK context has been replaced um, uh, since the, the establishment of the NHS in the 50s and the sort of uh, broader welfare state um, that, that religion has been re- replaced with the National Health Service. And um, Linda Woodhead is someone who's been making such um, arguments in recent years, but and she did post an interesting piece um, the other day just acknowledging now how... Uh, this the discourse surrounding the NHS is just so protective you know it can't be criticized at all um and even now when we're in a phase where um arguably on many measures the NHS uh is failing and is failing to cope etc um this sort of uh, rhetorical um commitment to the NHS and the populace um seems to be sort of growing 
even more. And you know, we must, you know, keep talking it up, talking it up. This is wonderful. Um, so there's some interesting parallels there, perhaps in terms of, uh, uh, perhaps, you know, when prophecy fails and all that sort of thing. Um, so I'm leaving you in that context. Um, you're in a completely different healthcare context, but I hope, um, both our contextual factors will continue to, uh, at least uh, hold up in some way, shape, or form. But uh, Chris and Savannah, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>